0: This is lecture number 28 on the major prophets by Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 28, which is his fourth lecture on Ezekiel. I think that it is significant that Israel, after all these millennia, again is a nation. And of course, that started in 1948. I don't see the fulfillment of this as a pouring out of God's Spirit, however. It's a secular state at this point. It may be an anticipation of movement towards fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit sometime in the future. It is significant, however, that Israel as a nation is back in the land of Canaan. In describing this situation, I think it is legitimate to use Kingdom terminology. Here's what I mean by that. We know that the kingdom of God is here, but yet not in its fullness. So we have a here-already-but-not-yet scenario. This is a better way to describe the kingdom than some of the dispensationalist people who say that the kingdom is not here. To them, the kingdom is entirely and exclusively in the future. But that doesn't do justice to the New Testament that speaks to the present aspect of the kingdom. But certainly, there is a future aspect that is going to be more complete than what we have at present. Now, you have to be careful that you don't use the, quote, already but not yet, end quote, phrase to explain everything. But I think there are some legitimate uses of the concept. We have to seek for the approach to interpretation that has the least objections, yet does justice to the requirements of the biblical text. Now, here's my point, and that is that the present nation of Israel is, quote, already, end quote, but it is secular, and the, quote, but not yet, end quote, portion, the spiritual entity envisioned by the prophet, is yet to come. Before looking at some statements of chapters 38 and 39, as they're both fairly long chapters, I think as far as the flow of the book of Ezekiel is concerned, if chapters 36 and 37 have referenced the millennial kingdom, then I think it is at least of some significance that chapters 38 and 39 that speak of the prophecy against Gog and Magog appear after the picture given of the millennium in chapters 36 and 37. Chapter 38, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him. Quote. I think it is possible that Ezekiel could give the picture of the millennium and then go back and tell of something before the time of the millennium. It's possible. We can't rule that out it would seem more natural to me to think of chapters 38 and 39 that they would be describing something that occurred after what's described in chapters 36 and 37. Now, having said that, I certainly think it is worth noticing that when you turn to Revelation and look at the description of the millennium in chapter 20, when you get down to verse 7, where the thousand years are ended, we read, quote, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. End quote. So when you look at the description of the millennial period, as given in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, it refers to Gog and Magog as something that occurs during this battle subsequent to the millennium. There is no other reference to Gog and Magog in Scripture except in Genesis chapter ten, verse two, where you have a Magog out of the line of Japheth, and that's parallel to the genealogy that you find in First Chronicles chapter one, verse five, where Magog is mentioned again. But other than that, Ezekiel 38 and Revelation chapter 20 are the only references. Now, in spite of that reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20 verse 7, there are many interpreters that will say that Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 describe something that occurs prior to the millennium. This battle with Gog and Magog is what precedes the millennial period, according to them, during the Armageddon battle, and that, at the end, subsequent to the millennial period. As an example, look at Ellison on page 53 of your citations, at the bottom of the page. He says, and I'm quoting here, There are but two mentions of Gog and Magog in Scripture. Here, that is, Ezekiel 38, and in Revelation, and unless very cogent arguments are mentioned to the contrary, we must let the latter, that is Revelation, interpret the former, that is Ezekiel. End quote. In other words, what he is saying is you want to know what is being described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Revelation 20 is what puts that in the right framework. To place Gog before the second advent and then to add the final revolt of the nations at the close of the kingdom age, as does the Schofield Bible, seems like an illegitimate attempt to have it both ways. The only real basis for the common view that these chapters see their fulfillment before the second advent is in Ezekiel chapter thirty nine verses twenty one to twenty nine. It is, however, far more satisfactory to look at these verses as a summary of the message of the whole section of Ezekiel. Now, admittedly, if you look at Ezekiel, chapter 39, verses 21 to 29, it does seem like there are events described there that are prior to the millennial period. You see, what Ellison suggests is that verses 21 to 29 are sort of a summary of this whole section of Ezekiel, and I think that is a concluding part. Now, when you get to verse 40, here you're in a new section of the book. So, chapter 39 is a concluding summary looking back on the whole section that it concludes. I continue with Ellison's quote on the top of page 54. If we place Gog at the end of the millennium, we will not concern ourselves very much with what the names mean. They are referred to in the New Bible Commentary of J. H. Lang, and in a statement in the Schofield Bible that, quote, the primary references are to the European powers headed up by Russia, end quote. Quite apart from the many who have always refused to identify Roche with Russia, notice that Roche is mentioned along with Gog and Magog, there is a strong tendency among modernists, for example, to return to the old Hebrew Masoretic tradition as it translates this passage with the authorized version. End quote. Well, that's a reference to verse 2. We'll look at that in more detail later. You see, the King James says, quote, Chief Prince of Meshach and Tubal. End quote. The NIV says, Chief Prince of Meshach and Tubal. End quote. The New American Standard Version has the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. See the difference? Is it Chief Prince of Meshach and Tubal, or is it the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal? And this is what the New English Bible does as well. Hal Lindsey, who had a lot to say about prophecy back in the 60s, reads it as follows. The Chief Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. You see, that comes from the Hebrew, which is Nisi Rosh. The question is, should nasi Rosh be taken as Prince of Rosh, or is Rosh to be taken as Chief, or Head, or Prince, and therefore nasi Rosh be Chief Prince, rather than nasi Rosh, meaning the Prince of Rosh. Is it a proper name? Prince of Roche, or is it a descriptive word of Chief Prince of Meshek and Tubal? So it has to do with how you translate Roche. Do you translate that as a proper noun, Roche, or do you translate it as Chief or Prince? We'll come back to that later, but you can see that Ellison is saying this. There's a strong tendency to translate it as Chief Prince rather than Prince of Roche. When we find that all the names are the tribes on the fringe of the then-known world, Gog and Magog, Meshech and Tubal, East Persia, South Cush and Put, those names that occur in this section, it becomes more probable that we're dealing with the symbolic use, as Revelation 20 verse 8 does, by calling them the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. How then are we to understand the whole prophecy in light of this New Testament placing if we accept the concept of the millennial kingdom as God's rule on earth when Satan is bound and the curse is lifted and Israel as a nation is at the center of the earth's blessing? What room is there for any such outburst or revolt against God under these conditions? The question is often asked as an objection to the millennial view. Ellison says that the scriptures show us that in all ages, with all the very circumstances of ignorance and knowledge, man has set his will against God and failed. The bulk of the Old Testament teaches the failure of the children of Israel, and that is, after all, Ezekiel's message. You see this especially in chapters 16, 20, and 23. The New Testament introduces us to the beginning of trouble in the church, It makes it clear that these troubles will grow worse rather than better here too in the mysterious purpose of god alongside the triumphs and failures of the organization that is the church the final proof for the failure of man is to be his response when placed in the most favorable position conceivable though the sanctuary of god is with man though the curse is lifted from nature though the tempter the enemy of god is bound yet when the opportunity is offered the deep-seated rebellion in the hearts of so many at once becomes obvious and that is from ellison i do not know if we are to understand the names gog and magog symbolically as those who have kept far from the glory of god centered in jerusalem or whether it refers above all to those in previous dispensations who have not been exposed directly to God's testing. In either case, there is no contradiction between Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 4, where God is pictured as drawing Gog to his doom, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, where Satan is portrayed as the deceiver of the nations. Man must be put to the test, or else it will not be clear what is in his heart. Satan is a willing instrument by which the testing is carried out." and that is certainly an instrument that God can use. So, what Ellison does here is give a rationale for the millennial period, and it seems to me to be a good one. Or, you might ask, regarding this whole approach, what is the purpose of the millennial period, if, again, it is going to result in rebellion? I think it pictures, again, that even though man is under the best of conditions, until sin is finally destroyed, and Satan along with it, and those who are not believers in the Lord are cast into the lake of fire, there is always going to be a chance for rebellion. This is the final proof of that, so to speak. But in any case, Ellison then would view chapters 38 and 39 in Ezekiel as descriptive of that which is going to occur subsequent to the millennial period, primarily based on the parallel reference in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Now, a very popular treatment of this passage, and that's back in the 60s, is how Hal Lindsay, who was very popular at that time, described all this in his very popular book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And we're going to go to chapter 5 of his book. Most of you are probably familiar with that book, even though it's a little later. But, Lindsay sees Gog and Magog as occurring not after the millennium, but prior to the millennium. You notice that on these translations of the second part of verse 2, and it's interesting that he takes it both ways. And we're talking about the second part of verse 2 in chapter 38 of Ezekiel. He has Chief Prince of Roche. Well, the problem is, you either have to have Chief Prince or Prince of Roche. You can't have it both ways. Mostly, other translations vary between Chief Prince or Prince of Roche or Chief of Roche for the Hebrew Nesi Roche. Now, look at page 55 of your citations under Lindsay there in the middle of the page. And he says, and I'm quoting him now, For centuries long before the current events could have influenced the interpreter's ideas, men have recognized that Ezekiel's prophecy about the northern commander referred to Russia. Dr. John Constance, writing in 1864, says, This kingdom in the north, I can see it to be the autograph of Russia, as Russia occupies a place where the prophetic word has been admitted by all those expositors. Quote. Well, what's the evidence? He goes on. Ezekiel describes this northern commander of Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince, the ruler of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, gives the ethnic background of this commander and his people. In other words, the prophet gives the family tree of the northern commander so that we can trace the migration of these tribes to the modern nation that we know. Gog is a symbolic name of the nation's leader, and Magog is his land. He is also the prince of the ancient people, who are called Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Quote. And then he goes on, on page 56, where Hal Lindsey says the following, William Gazanias, the great Hebrew scholar of the 19th century, discusses these words in his unsurpassed Hebrew grammar. He says Meshach was the founder of the Moshki. The Moshki people dwelt in the mountains. This scholar goes on to say that the Greek name derived from the Hebrew name Meshach is the source of the name of the city of Moscow. And discussing Tubal, he says Tubal is the son of Roth founder of the people who dwell in the Black Sea area and west of the Moskoi. He concludes by saying these people make up the modern Russian people. And that's the end of the quote from Lindsay. Well, there's one more name to consider in this line of evidence, and that is the Hebrew word Rosh, translated chief, in Ezekiel 38 in the King James Version. The word literally means in Hebrew the top or head of something. According to most scholars, this word is used in the sense of a proper name, not as a descriptive noun qualifying the word prince. The German scholar Kyle says that after careful grammatical analysis, that it should be translated as a proper name, that is, the proper name Roche, and not as head or top. He says that the Byzantine and Arabic writers were frequently mentioning the people they called Roche, Roche dwelling in the country of the Taurus, and reckoned among the Scythian tribes. Dr. Gazania says Roche was a designation for the tribes north of the Taurus Mountains dwelling in that neighborhood. He concluded that in this name and tribe we have the first statement that Roche is the Russian nation. So it's quite clear what Lindsay says. He puts it before the millennium and links this prophecy with Russia. Of course, with the Cold War situation and the movement of Russia into the Middle East over the last 15 years, it seems to many not to be a forced interpretation. Notice that in the third to the last paragraph, he says the German scholar Kyle also translates Roche as a proper name. Look at page 55 of your citations, and I have that paragraph in Kyle's commentary. It's interesting what Kyle really says, because Lindsay only partially quotes him. I don't know if we need to read the whole paragraph, but down towards the end is where it gets to that material that we're interested in, and here's what Kyle says. Gog is further described as the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, It is true that Ewald, another commentator, follows Aquila, the Targum, and Jerome connecting Roche with Nisi as an appellative in the sense of chief prince. But the argument used to support this explanation, namely that there is no people with the name of Roche mentioned either in the Old Testament or by Josephus, is a very weak one. The Byzantine and Arabic writers frequently mention people called Rosh dwelling in the country of Taurus and among the Scythian tribes, so that there is no reason to question the existence of the people Roche. And that's the end of the quote from Kyle's commentary. But then that's where Lindsay stops his quote. Notice, however, the next statement by Kyle, and I'm quoting here, even though the attempt to find the trace of such people as Roche by examining this name as a combination Roche and Meshek, it is just doubtful that the name of the Russians is connected with this name Roche End quote. in other words, Kyle does say Roche can be a designation of a people, but what he says is that it's not connected with Russia. He says that quite strongly by the way. He says this suggestion is doubtful that the name of the Russians is connected with the name Roche. Now, I guess Lindsay didn't find it appropriate to quote that part because it would go strongly against the way that he is interpreting this section of Ezekiel. Well, let's go on and let's take a look at number 3, capital D, and 3 under that in our outline under the heading of R.H. Alexander's Ezekiel Commentary in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, page 122. It says the following, and I quote again, Some understand Roche to mean modern Russia, but this identity has no basis. Those holding such a view normally appeal to etymology based on similar sounds to the hearing between the two terms, that is, the two terms Roche and Russia. But such etymological procedure is not linguistically sound at all. The term Russia is late 11th century A.D., quote. So, he says Russia is a late 11th century A.D. term, and linguistically, to connect Russia with Roche here seems to have no basis whatsoever. Now, moving on in your bibliography, I have two entries for Edwin Yamauchi. One is from a JETS article, that's the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. And the article is called Meshach, Tubal, and Company, which is a review article. And the other is from his book called Foes from the Northern Frontier, Invading Hordes from the Russian Steppes, that was reprinted in 2004, where he has a rather lengthy discussion on these names. But look at the bottom of page 56 in your citations, taking some material first from the Jets article and then from the book. Again, JETS is the journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Meshach and Tubal are two names that occur there in verse 2 of Ezekiel chapter 38. I might say that Lindsay connects Tubal with Toble, a Russian city, and Meshach with Moscow. So you have Lindsay averring Roche being Russia and Meshach and Tubal being Moscow and Tuble in Russia, respectively. But notice what Yamauchi says, and I'm quoting him here. Meshach and Tubal are the most controversial names in the list of Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, and in First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 5, as sons of Japheth. If their names had only occurred in these lists, their identification might have simply been an academic issue. But the names occur in a prophetic passage, such as Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 13, chapter 32, verse 26, and chapter 38, verse 2 that we've been discussing, and also in chapter 39, verse 1 of Ezekiel. The Hebrew word for chief of Rosh in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2 was transliterated by the Septuagint as a proper name Rosh, giving rise to the widespread impression that Russia was intended. According to Custance we heard him before when we were talking about Lindsay, it may be observed that the term Nesirosh, which in this passage is translated as chief prince, signified inhabitants of Scythia, from whom the Russians derived their name. Russia was known as Moskova until the time of Ivan the Terrible, at which time it became connected with Meshech. Much later in history, we meet the word Meshech in the form of Moskova, It is possible that the two famous cities, Moscow and Toble, still preserve the name Meshech and Tubal. Well, that's the same kind of idea that Lindsay promoted. Now, Yamauchi's comment is that, quote, these groundless identifications have unfortunately gained widespread currency in the evangelical world through many channels in the first and second edition of the Schofield Bible. Notice this in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, and in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2. This view is also expressed in the phenomenally popular book of Hale Lindsay, the late great planet Earth, and in the lectures of Campus Crusade Evangelico Josh McDowell on numerous campuses. The perpetuation of such identification is based on superficial similarity. It is completely untenable in the way that the clear evidence of a cuneiform text locates Mushku, Biblical Meshech, and Tabel, Biblical Tubal, in central and eastern Anatolia. End quote. By the way, Anatolia is Turkey. I continue now with Yamauchi. The Muski persevered through the Hittite Empire and Tiglath-Pileser I, who encountered 20,000 of them in the region of Upper Tigris. Ashurbanipal received presents from the Mushki, whose capital was Azaka, (Classical serea in modern eastern Anatolia. In 863 BC, Shalmaneser attacked Tabel in the region north of Cilicia, and Tubal in 732 BC, when the king did not present the expected tribute. After the conquering of Anatolia by Cyrus in 546 B.C. and the subsequent organization under Darius, the remnants of the Mushki and the Tabel may be seen in the Greek names of the population, which were included in the 19th satrapy of northeast Anatolias, the Mushki and the Tibinari quote. It is a reflection on evangelical scholarship when Yamauchi speaks of a groundless identification of Roche as Russia and the association of Meshach with Moscow and of Tubal with Tobel, when we have had cuneiform texts and discussions on these peoples that have provided true clarification of these names at the end of the 19th century. It is true that some of these studies were in French or in works that are not readily accessible or widely distributed, but less excusable and more indicative of a parochial vision of the ignorance of critical commentary on Ezekiel passages when we have first-hand information on the correct interpretation of the terms Meshech and Tubal. Well then, in Yamauchi's book, Foes from the Northern Frontier, he says, though the identification of Gog and Magog still remains disputed, the identification of Meshach and Tubal have for a long time not been in doubt. In all formal conjectures associating these names with Moscow and Tubal, well, all these are untenable. The names Meshech and Tubal are preserved by the Greek historian Herodotus as tribes of eastern Anatolia. And Josephus was also aware of their location. Since the late 19th century, Assyrian texts have been available, which locate Mushtu and Tubal, Meshech and Tubal, in central and eastern Anatolia, respectively. And that is from Yamauchi. So, I think we have to be careful about the approach when it sees in Ezekiel chapter 38 a prophecy that is presently being anticipated by Russian involvement in the Middle East, which has been a popular sort of interpretation of Ezekiel chapter 38, particularly when it rests on this kind of flimsy basis. We must be very careful not to make these associations of names. Now, this expositor, Alexander, that I mentioned, who did Ezekiel in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, also wrote an article on Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, in JETS, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, in 1974. Alexander sees this as a double fulfillment. On page 168 in the JETS article, he says, Quote, Undoubtedly, the reader may be perplexed by this section. As a parenthetical remark, I would say he certainly is not kidding here. It most certainly appears that two separate positions have been approved by the writer. He says that is precisely the proposal that is offered. The full description of the events as recorded in Ezekiel... The Apostle John only summarizes the account of both in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, since readers would have been familiar with Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. End quote. By the way, when he says that this certainly appears to be the two separate positions approved by the writer, he seems to be talking about the writer Ezekiel. Now, skipping down the ways, he says... The hermeneutical principle of multiple fulfillment declares that a given prophecy has one meaning applied in two or more ways. There may be a near and a far fulfillment, two near fulfillments or two far fulfillments. The latter is proposed here, that is, two far fulfillments. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 has a multiple fulfillment. One, the demise of the beast, the chief instrument of Satan in Revelation chapter 19 verses 17 to 21 And the second, the final fall of Satan, that Gog, who is the supreme enemy of Israel, who makes the final attempt to regain the land of Israel from God's chosen people. The multiple fulfillment is concentrated on similar events with the last and greatest enemies of Israel, both the beast and Satan, who seek to defeat Israel and to acquire the land for themselves. Both events are forwarded by the Lord. The former, in one sense, prefigures the latter. Gog, therefore, refers both to the beast in Revelation chapter 19 and to Satan in Revelation chapter 20. The time of these accounts are between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium. The first fulfillment is before the millennium and the second after the millennium, respectively. End quote. So, this is an example of someone who sees it both ways, before the millennium and after it. The writer believes Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 is one of the most difficult texts in Scripture, and it is solved by the concept of multiple fulfillment. But, that's got to be rejected. The only apparent alternative is to declare one of the chapters, Revelation 19, or Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, and affirm the remaining chapter is just an illusion or analogy to Ezekiel chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine. I don't want to get into the details of that, but that was R. H. Alexander and his Jets article that is given in your bibliography. That is the end of Robert Vinoy's lecture number twenty-eight on the major prophets, which is also lecture number four on Ezekiel. Um.